Good morning, starshine. The earth says hello. You twinkle above us, we twinkle below. Welcome to Middle Church. I'm Reverend Natalie, and we are so glad that you've chosen to worship with us today. Thank you for coming. Oh, it's also conference weekend, and I'm sure there are a number of guests in the uh, watching today. So if you are there, just message with us in the chat. We'd love to get to know you. Um, and it's been a fantastic weekend so far, right? So let's get on with worship. But before we do, we'd like to take a deep centering breath together. And let us worship God.
both you and I know that kids are the most awesome people on this planet. And if you didn't know, now you know. Let's listen to what they have to say about who they want to be when they grow up. What I want to be when I grow up is a Major League Baseball player. A scientist, um, a doctor, or a paleontologist. Swimmer, a scientist, and of course, a basketball player. An actor and then a baseball player. A jewelry maker. A hairstylist, a mom, an astronaut, a scientist, help my sisters with their kids. I want to be a football player. A fireman. When I grow up, I want to be a fairy and a doctor. When I grow up, I want to be a teacher. I want to be a sports broadcaster when I grow up. I want to be a Black Lives Matter police officer. Have you ever considered what the world needs more of? Our young people certainly have, and they have cast a beautiful vision of the future for all of us to imagine together. The thing that the world needs more of is getting together without Corona. The world needs more of is vaccines for COVID so we can be together again. The world needs more of love. I think the world needs a little more compassion and teamwork. The world needs more of kindness. The world needs more love. Nature. I think that it needs a The world needs more of is animals, poachers, hunters, killing endangered species, even if they're harmless. Peace. The world needs more good people doing good things. It needs to be a better place, cleaned up, and with love and care. I think the world needs more of money. See ya, hum. We are marching in the light of God. We are marching in the light of God. everyone. Good morning. I'm Amanda, executive minister at Middle. I use she, her pronouns. And I'm smiling so big from this beautiful worship that's already had been happening this morning. Those kids, can't the kids just be the leaders of the world? We're so glad that you all are worshiping with us from wherever you are in the world on this 
uh, worship Sunday morning in the middle of Ramadan on the cusp of Earth Day. And as Natalie reminded us, this is our conference Sunday. So many of you are joining us today because you are part of our revolutionary love, the Courage to Imagine Conference Sunday. And we want to officially welcome you. If you have not been partaking in our conference yet, but you want to join us, there is still time. We have a full day today, closing with a keynote um, message from Reverend Dr. William Barber. If you'd like to get tickets, the information is right there on the slide about how to join us. And if you've been worshiping with us and you have been experiencing conference with us these past four days and you want to stay part of the middle family, please do. Just go to middlechurch.org slash join right now and we will stay connected to you in this most important work of revolutionary love and justice. Let's stay connected and do this work together. And now I want to tell you about a couple of things that are happening in the life of Middle Church. Two Sundays from now, we are hosting along with a plethora of multi-faith partners here in the city, a mayoral forum. We are gonna hold our candidates to the line on low-income housing, on police relations and on criminal reform. And we want you to be there. Even if you're not in New York, but wanna join, please do and help us ask candidates questions together. And then the following day at seven o'clock, our middle players are back with another show for us, Confessions on Uncle Lance. Join us for both of those things. And friends, now we are going to move into a time of reflection and prayer. Reverend Angel reminded us at conference this morning of how important it is to stay in our bodies how we cannot do any of this work before us without being present in our very bodies. And so let's move together now and pray. We will pray through song and dance and performance art, Mary's song, Breath of Heaven, as we remember that the Spirit of God is ever around us. Let's pray together now.
And now let us gather our prayers using the prayer that Jesus taught us. Please pray in whatever words and language feel most comfortable to you, or join me in the inclusive version printed below. Ever-loving and holy God, hallowed be your name. Your reign come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the reign and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
you. May the peace that passes all understanding be with you now and always. Hi, I'm Julia. I'm in Borough Hill, Brooklyn. Peace be with you. Hi, from Manhattan, sending the love and the peace from Antoine Hopper to all members and everyone out there with the hearts. I love you. La paz sea con vosotros. Peace be with you. Amen. Yun ju ko ping on, yu lei tong joy. Love to you all, um, and may the peace of God be with you. We got this. Hi, middle family. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be unto you. Que la gracia y paz de Dios esté con todos ustedes. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Or in German, Friede sei mit euch. Peace be with you. Good morning. Peace be with you. Oh, look, a hand! May the peace of God be with you. Morning, friends. Peace be with you. Peace be with you, middle family. Love you. Peace be with you. Carry it to the ones you love. Hello, my little brothers and sisters. Elizabeth here. I'm wishing you so much peace. We are in Inwood, and we are wishing you peace this morning. Peace be with you, middle family. This is Bianca. I'm out in Brooklyn, breathing with you and wishing you peace. Ah, si te quiero mucho.
reading from 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. Listen to a word from God. So we have known and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not yet reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God, and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. I sat back, waiting, anticipating. At some point, change would begin. And then it hit me. I was what was missing. My weight was dead. That's why we couldn't move ahead. Well, no more delays. It all ends today. Don't gotta go so heavy if we all pull our weight. You and I are the ones we've been waiting for. You and I thought this was somebody else's war. You and I, you and I are the ones we've been waiting for. Hooked by a promise, just hope change is coming. But hope alone won't bring about that change. We are God's feet. God's hands and heartbeat, God in the flesh. Let's blast full speed ahead. So no more delays. It all ends today. It doesn't have to be so heavy if we just pull our own weight. You and I are the ones we've been waiting for. You and I thought it was somebody else's war. You and I are the ones, the ones we've been waiting for. To speak out, to walk alongside, to stand up for the love revolution that will heal our souls and the world. Who will join this standing up and stand with sweet company and sing and weep and sing and march back into the mountains and, if necessary, even under the sea? Come and join me. We are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the ones we have been waiting for. We are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the ones we have been waiting for. We've been waiting for.
Good morning, everybody. Thank you, amazing middle family, for the beautiful worship, for the music, for the prayers, for just being you. Thank you, babies, for articulating a vision of a preferred reality. Um, so glad to see you today. I'm so glad to be with you today. Conference family, gosh, we miss you. So good that you came in the digital space. Um, the very last time I wore this jacket, period, <laughs> uh, is the this conference worship when we were together the last time in person in 2019. I, I sort of uh, couldn't wear it last year for some reason, but it makes me think of you. I'm thinking of all of you. I have to admit that I'm smiling at the beautiful worship. I'm smiling at uh, the beautiful, just brave. Does anybody sing that song better than Madge? And Glory with Alex and John. And I'm also mourning today. I'm mourning today for the people in Indianapolis, for the sick American. I'm mourning today for the possibility that that was a hate crime. I'm mourning today for a nation that's more concerned about the right to bear arms than it is for people to have the right to live more concerned. Yes, I'm also concerned about birth rights, but more concerned about the the people who are alive, who might die at the hands of gun violence. I'm mourning today for Adam Toledo with his family. I'm mourning for a child shot dead. I'm mourning for Dante Wright, a mama's boy shot dead. I'm mourning for a burned sanctuary. If I'm honest, when I see these beautiful images, I sometimes can't breathe because some choice is made that doesn't choose fixing stuff in the building next door. And so then our sanctuary burns down. I'm mourning for my neighbors who lived in that building who still don't have a place to live, who remain homeless because the owner of that building won't put them in another building, which she owns, which she could. I'm mourning because we don't really believe that we are our brothers and sisters keepers, or those aren't the kinds of choices we make. And those of you who heard my brother speak today, April's just tough, I'm mourning my mom. Born on April 11th, died on April 25th, anniversary on April 20th. That whole month is just full of the sorrow of four years of living life without her. I miss her. I miss her face. I miss her heart. I miss how she was, for all of my life, a kind of compass, a cue for how to feel. Watching her face was like watching a window to the world. I miss her especially at this point in my life when, when the world is just on fire. How many deaths unavoidable to COVID-19? How many disproportionately black and brown and frankly friends more Hispanic people, a whole generation of Hispanic men dead? As I mourn the loss of the church, as we mourn the loss of civility, 
as violence rises against our AAPI family, it's heartbreaking as an angry mob beats its way into the nation's capital and somehow that was just like a protest. I, I just, I miss her and I'm sad that as the trial of, of children who just squeezed the life out of George Floyd with his hands casually in his pocket. And we wonder if we actually will see not justice because it won't be justice because George Floyd's not coming back, but our, our social justice system, our criminal justice system, just the name is criminal. It's on trial. And as we wait to find out if black grief matters, if black deaths matter, I think to myself, God, mommy, I wish you were here so I could tell you how tired I am, how damn tired I am of living in a country that treats black grief as a threat and white rage as a sacrament. What do I mean? I mean, the contrast between the treatment of the capital insurrectionists versus my own experience in the same building with a mixed race bunch of protesters is stark. There we were outside of the office of Mitch McConnell with a group of multi-ethnic leaders, all of us demanding to have the Republican-led Senate not take away the Affordable Care Act at that point. We stood outside of McConnell's office singing, singing with passion, waiting for the signal that we could stay as long as we needed to, just the right moment. And then the Capitol Police were, were, were going to come and arrest us, but those police were not opening up barriers for us. They weren't handing us water. They weren't high-fiving us. They were not gently pointing the way for us. We were too black, too brown, too queer for that. Though our protest was both peaceful and permitted, we knew the very fact that black people were with us, that we were black-led, Reverend Barber and I, uh, we knew that we were in danger. Protesting is a dangerous act when you're black and brown in this nation. In the immediate aftermath, after the disturbing events at the Capitol in January, many pundits were wringing their hands and saying, you know, this is not who we are. This is not who we are. This is precisely who we are. This is exactly who we are. We are the nation that builds itself on violence and death. We are the church interlaced with white supremacy. That's who we are, white rage, white grievance, white entitlement, have always been privileged over black grief, black justice, black lives, black well-being, black resilience, black surviving. So I'm saddened by the images played over and over again on the news. I, I can hardly take seeing those images, the people climbing up the steps of the Capitol with the Confederate flags, but these are not new images. They are not new phenomenon, the, the, the look of dead bodies rotting and the look of white supremacy celebrating. I remember when I was 16 and doing a research paper, it was the first time I saw the picture of 14-year-old Emmett Till. Do y'all remember that picture? In the Jet magazine, the Ebony magazine, his mama insisted that the casket be open, his lynched body in a photo spread in the Jet magazine. Mamie's there in the picture too, crying. His picture's up on the back of the cast. There he is, a boy, bloated body, missing eye. Horrific picture. She wanted us to see what it meant to be black and young in Mississippi 
in those days, a Chicago boy hanging out in the South, not quite trained how not to be sassy or whatever was his crime, just being young and black. Whistling at the woman, she since recanted his death evidence of how much blackness is loathed in this nation. How many times have we seen those pictures? How many images did I watch with my mom? Folks marching across the Pettus Memorial Bridge or young people sitting at the lunch counters, glass ketchup bottles and salt bottles crashed over their heads. Children integrating schools spat at, rocks thrown at them. Why? Because whiteness despises blackness. Closer to home, I watched police beat the stew out of the neighbor across the street, a black man, beautiful, smart, strong black man who looked out for us when we were outside playing. And I remember standing on my porch saying, Daddy, what did he do? What did he do? We have family who got spanked sometimes. You know, you might get spanked for being bad. Child's understanding thinking he must have done something really terrible for this to happen. What did he do, Daddy? He did not pay his traffic tickets. Maybe you're selling cigarettes or CDs. Maybe you're sitting in your car playing music too loud. Maybe. Maybe you have a toy gun outside. Maybe you're walking with Skittles and iced tea. Maybe you allegedly passed a fake $20 bill and you just didn't move fast enough. Nine minutes and 29 seconds of torture because it could happen. And it did happen. I'm talking about white rage, y'all. White rage, white rage, white rage at the loss of power, white rage at the loss of entitlement, white rage at the growing and numbers of black and brown people, white rage, white rage about having less votes than used to be had, white rage, inciting riot, white rage, screaming and crying about Jews and blacks and Muslims and queers. White rage is why the Klan grew up in the church. White rage is why a law has been passed to not take water and food to the black aunties and uncles that will be voting in Georgia. White rage is why there are over 150 laws on the books. White rage is why strange fruit hang from Southern trees. White churchgoers watching and taking pictures with their little babies on their shoulders. Help us, Holy Spirit. White rage produced the brutal response to black success in Tulsa. It cries foul when black students get into Ivy League schools. It spreads suspicion about the legitimacy of the first black presidency and white rage turned violent when black trans and queer 
Kids dare to walk down the street in joyful freedom. The joy itself seems to incite the rage. Chants of Black Lives Matter causes enraged white people to counter with all lives matter when they know it's a lie because the Black life doesn't count. What they really mean is that if a Black life matters, then maybe their white life doesn't matter enough because of course mattering is some kind of zero-sum game. White rage turns violent towards protesters in every generation who demand human rights, who demand freedom. Freedom sticks in the throat of white supremacy. And if we dare to call it the light is, we risk life. But the story of white supremacy is as American as apple pie. Thomas Jefferson himself spoke of it in notes on the state of Virginia. He itemized the many ways that blacks are not as beautiful, not as wonderful, not as smart, not as loving, not as deeply feeling as whites, and even speculated that our grief, our grief is transient. We're so much like animals, we don't even feel loss. Not for long. But oh, how wrong he was. Black grief, my grief, your grief, Black people, is not transient. It's generational. It's incarnate in our bodies. We wrap it. We sing about it. We write about it. We dance to it. We take it to the streets. We teach our children how to grieve and be resilient. Yet when we do so, our grief is often met with disdain. We're told to get over it. When black grief shows up in the office and dares to speak up, demanding the glass ceiling be shattered, the black, the backlash from white rage interprets that grief as too angry the black employee isn't a team player, can't be coached, can't be promoted. And in this way, black grief, which of course is angry, is shut down and cut off. And the result is that the grief rots and depresses and kills our souls. It causes our children to turn toward each other, the closest person with whom to act out the grief and sometimes cause harm. I'm gonna to suggest today though that black grief isn't transient, it's prophetic. Thinking about my friend, Microwave Matthews and my friend, Otis Moss and his father, prophetic grief knows how to weep, how to wipe tears and then how to organize for justice. It's persistent and it knows how to keep its eyes on the prize and hold on. Black grief knows more than any other kind of grief that we who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes until the death and the life of one black mother's child matters as much as a white mother's child. Black grief is resilient because it knows the art of the moral universe bends towards justice and nothing, nothing is going to turn us around. Black grief finally gives way to joy because the weeping comes and lasts for a season. Joy always comes in the morning. We who are gathered here this morning are gathered here from many tribes, from many corners of the earth, bringing our hopes and our dreams, our, our issues, our, our problems, the things we hope we can fix in the world. And we know that there are many reasons that human beings fight with one another, persecute one another, kill one another. But I'm here to suggest that race, race, what we call race in America, tops the list. As psychologist 
Robert Carter puts it, race is a different difference. A different difference. But that also means that if we can find our way to healing on this big and thorny issue. If friends, we can have the courageous imagination to make racial justice an everyday spiritual practice, we will have changed our view of humanity and the view of the world that we inhabit. We can change our circumstances if we can disrupt racism, if we can dis disrupt racial prejudice, if we can make choices based on fairness and equality, I believe we will have cleared the way to resolving all of the issues related to race. Housing patterns, incarceration patterns, economic disparity, educational disparity, healthcare disparity, environmental disparity are all tied up in caste discrimination and xenophobia. Therefore, race is worthy of our time and attention. It is worthy of special and specific focus. Howard Zinn wrote, there is no country in the world in which racism has been more important for so long as here in the United States. And the problem of the color line as W.E.B. Du Bois put it, is still with us. We must critique our racist culture in which being black is a pre-existing condition for poverty, discrimination, and death. We must understand that anti-black racism is a festering sore, a putrid hole in the soul of America that will heal only when our shared commitment to imagining another way pushes us to be courageous pushes us to love in new ways. And we have to walk that path with furious intention. Yes, this is work for our electeds, absolutely for sure. But we cannot abdicate the responsibilities wholly to them. We, as my people, mi gente said, <coughs> we are the ones we've been waiting for. We're the ones that have to write a new American story to find a way to build fierce love in the world. And by fierce love, I mean the kind of love that is talked about in all of the major world religions. The kind of love that asks us to love our people, our brothers, our sisters, our posses, as we love ourselves. I'm talking about making that kind of love an everyday spiritual practice like flossing and brushing our teeth, like praying or meditating or doing yoga. We can make choices toward justice and fairness and equality. If we can do that, then we can make the world better tomorrow for the children that we're called to love. We can help our children's dreams come true. We're called, we're called in fact, to love fiercely our neighbors as ourselves. This is the true meaning of religion, which in essence means to bind ourselves together, to relegate, to become bound to each other. That's what religion is about. That's what faith is about. There's truest sense. We should be connected to one another. We who say we have lives of faith to each other, to creation, 
to the world. Religion should connect us to the source of our being. Religion should help us listen to the calling of our better angels. Religion should improve our Ubuntu sensibility. What do I mean by Ubuntu? It's, it's the Zulu word for human. It actually means a person is a person through other persons. A person is human through other humans. In this, in this sense that Ubuntu realizes, articulates that we are bound to one another, that our thriving and our surviving will only happen because we do it together. And you and I know how much religion has been weaponized, how much it works against this feeling of inextricable connection. It pits us against each other rather than pulling us toward one another. And as a Christian clergy, I am ashamed of all the things that my tribe has done in the name of Jesus. Jews exterminated in the name of Jesus. Muslims tortured in the name of Jesus. In the name of the Jewish baby who was at one time homeless and at another time a refugee, refugees left outside in the cold in the name of Jesus. Slavery in the name of Jesus. Anti-gay violence, anti-trans violence in the name of Jesus. I'm so ashamed of what's happened to the world in the name of Christianity. I'm telling you, Christianity needs an exorcism. Somebody say amen. And in the name and in the interest of exercising hate, I find myself preaching another religion, a new religion, a religion that's simply called love, like a fierce love that I believe can be a faith for all of us to believe in, whether we're theist or not. Can we find ourselves leaning into love, becoming love itself as a way to heal ourselves and to heal the world? In fact, sometimes I tell my congregation in a benediction, go out in the world and make love everywhere. Ha ha, make love everywhere. I don't think it's because I've lost my religion, it's that I've put down, I've put down the places and spaces of my faith that, that are hypocritical, that are screwed up, that are heterosexist and, and, and don't believe in women's rights. And it just doesn't make any sense to me. And I can't, quite frankly, preach it anymore. And so I'm, I'm admitting to you today that I'm, I'm here to convert you. I'm here to, I'm here to proselytize. I'm here to ask you to join me in the kind of religion that a little tribe of, 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 of children in an African village know about. They're being studied by a white anthropologist a woman who came to study what Ubuntu meant. And she decided at the end of the study to, to reward these kids. So she put a bag of candy out on a table and, and told them, you know, on your marsh kid said, go race. And whoever gets there first gets the candy. Now these are poor children in an African village. And they did not run to the candy. They reached across and grabbed each other's hands and they walked to the candy. And when they got to the candy, they shared up the candy amongst themselves. 
they lived Ubuntu. They lived love, the kind of love that Wesley read about today in the scriptures. Now, this is a Christian text, and we could say it's for Christian people, but the writer of 1 John is saying, those who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. Those who live inside love, all who live inside love, live in God, and God lives in them. The writer was trying to remind his Jewish audience and his newly converted uh, you know, Gentile audience about the story, the story of God's people being on the move in the desert and building a tabernacle, a little house in which they could take God with them. They took God with them across the desert so they'd always have the presence of God with them. And the writer of 1 John is saying, now you're the house in which God lives, people. You're the place in which God resides. You, when you love, are the tabernacle of God. We don't need a tabernacle. We don't need a synagogue. We don't need a church. You're it. You're the place where God lives. This old wise writer is saying, this kind of love, this agape love, this Ubuntu love, when we live it, we house the holy. And not only we, our neighbors house the holy. And so the writer is saying, this kind of love isn't just about you and God, my people. This kind of love is about you and your neighbor. The relationship is horizontal. You can't say you love God and hate your brother and sister. When you do that, you lie. So don't come up in here, Christians, saying you love your neighbor and you can't wait to kill some black folks. Don't say, Christians, you love your neighbor when you're thinking about to undo the people who, who live around you. Don't say you love God, people, when you're trying to live out policies that punish the poor. Don't say you love God, my people when you hate the queer, hate the woman, hate the Muslim, hate the Jew, hate the outsider, hate the stranger. It's just not true. To love God is to love the other, even if the other is inside you. I'm asking us today to get honest, to get real, to get true. Love is hard work. I have a friend who heard one of my sermons recently. I guess I had said the word they too, too many times. And she called me on it and said, you who are preaching love, I'm feeling a little bit like you're trying to leave out the they who don't agree with you. I was like, oh, that's not true. But it was. I was drawing a line in the sand. I was thinking to myself, how am I gonna love those insurrectionists, those people, those Christians who don't believe Jesus was about justice, those white people, those white people who oppress my people. How am I gonna love them? when they hate us. Well, damn it, I'm not called to go sit down and have coffee with them, but I am called, if I'm gonna follow Rabbi Jesus, to try to find a way to love the hell out of them, 
to try to find a way to speak truth to power, to find a way to have conversations I don't wanna have. I don't want to have those conversations. To get outside of my echo chamber and try to engage the one who disagrees with me and see if we can find common ground. Where's the place where we can make a just society for our children? How can we engage each other across our disagreements and make freedom a shared objective? I can't do that if I don't talk to them and I can't talk to them if I don't engage them and I won't engage them if I don't admit that they are in fact also God's children and find a way to love them. I'm talking about me. But if that shoe fits you, then I'm talking about you too. And to be honest, though this text is written in the Christian scriptures, every single major religion says, do unto other as you would have them do unto you. Don't do that to the one that you don't want to have done to yourself. It is a ubiquitous call to love each other, written in all of the scriptures that we call holy. And so I'm saying this is a universal problem and a universal opportunity. Can we imagine, can we courageously imagine that the person we dislike the most, the one that we have the most disdain for is in fact cousin, auntie, friend, love. Can we, as my friend Valerie says, see no stranger, can we link arms and heal this world or it will die and we will die in it. I'm so sad today about all the death around us. I'm so angry today at the way hatred causes us to hate and hate and hate like a spiral that we can't get out of. And I'm asking you to join me in a risky place, in a courageous place, maybe even in a dangerous place, to face our fears, to move toward one another, to try to join hands with our enemies or our opponents and to love each other into freedom. That kind of love isn't for wimps. It is fierce. It is ferocious. It is risk-taking. It requires humility. It makes us have to admit when we're wrong. It causes us to move toward the center. It will make us create a new nation. I'm trying to do that. I hope you'll come. May it be so. Good evening. I'm Chelsea Clinton, and I've been inspired uh, as a New Yorker and as a person uh, by Middle Church uh, for so many years. Uh, I've been personally inspired by Reverend Jackie uh, since she and I uh, first had the chance to meet uh, back in 2014 when we were both being honored for our work by Auburn Seminary. Um, 
I think it's always important uh, that a place like Middle Church, a place that is Middle Church, a multicultural movement of love and justice in community and in action um, for, for and toward and working kind of with all of its community um, for a world of greater uh, racial, economic, gender, and sexual equity. Uh, it's always important that a place that is Middle Church exists. It's especially important that a place like Middle Church exists in 2021 after a year of uh, extreme uh, trauma and uh, dislocation for so many during COVID-19 and after um, the continued uh, weaponization of uh, hate uh, and bigotry um, from the highest halls of power that we've all uh, seen up until uh, the beginning of this new year. And so I think my heart was just broken, as I know um, so many of ours were, uh, when I heard of the fire that destroyed this uh, extraordinary physical space um, a few months ago in December. Um, and I say physical space because I know that it certainly didn't destroy the community that is Middle Church. And yet I know that the places where we gather are important, hopefully, as we look toward being able to gather together safely uh, soon uh, this year. Um, and so I just I reached out to Jackie to say, like, what can I do? How can I help? Uh, and um, she shared about tonight. Uh, and so tonight and well beyond, um, what we all can do is to ensure uh, that the physical space is rebuilt. Uh, that it is able to reclaim its place for its important, uh, vital, necessary work um, for today and for the future. Um, so I hope that you will join me in making a contribution, if you're able to, um, to uh, enabling Middle Church um, to build uh, again uh, the sacred space um, that it deserves. Uh, for their soul healing work for so many and for their work kind of toward uh, a more uh, radical and a more equal, a more equitable, a more sustainable and a more love and joy filled future. Um, so please uh, go to middlechurch.org backslash rising and donate if you can.
Will you pray with me? God, we want to give you thanks for this wonderful day. And we want to give you thanks for the many wonderful gifts that have been brought into this place, that have been gifted into this church, that have come to serve this mighty and powerful, amazing movement of revolutionary love. We thank you, God, that in this movement, not this time, people can find fertile ground by which they can plant their seeds and know that they can see an increase of 30, 60 and 90 fold so that the, the, the benefits of your reign, your, your love, your grace can go exceedingly and abundantly and above all we could ever ask or think, moving far and beyond the confines of this church. So bless all people in this space today and let them know that they are loved of you unconditionally. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Fierce love, fierce love. The fiercest love of all is what's going to heal our souls and our world. 
So here's my benediction to you this morning, friends. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us. And the world will live as one. I love you.